This is the third day of this June 2020 four-day remote session. Some three months into the uh, lockdown. Quite an experiment, this session. Uh, for uh, for Tesha this morning, we'll do one more one more reading from our text of the uh, last couple days, which is a book called The Original Face, uh, and it, which is an anthology, a collection of different teachings uh, of uh, from Rinzai Zen, Japanese Rinzai Zen, and the one we left off yesterday, reading from is uh, Zen Master Bunan. Uh, he lived in the 1600s. And this uh, short section <coughs> is, uh, is titled, maybe the translator did this, uh, Thomas Cleary, Things People Are Always Wrong About. But of course, the following words are those of Zen Master Bunan. The first thing he lists as things people are always wrong about is hating to be fooled by others while liking to be fooled by oneself. There's a lot behind that statement. Yeah, hating to be fooled by others, this is common sense enough. Uh, No one likes to be cheated or taken advantage of, lied to. But then liking to be fooled by oneself. He's speaking to our, our seemingly endless capacity to be dishonest with ourselves. All of the maneuvers that we come up with to avoid the truth about ourselves and others. The ways that we evade what's right before our eyes. The mechanisms, the defense mechanisms, as psychologists might call it, all of the ways we uh, protect ourselves as we imagine it, the way we insulate ourselves from receiving the full message and how it gets distorted what what we are what hearing what we're being told zen practice is one continuous process of uncovering the layers of self deceit The great Zen master Joshu, Zhaozhou, was once asked by a monk, what is the first principle of one wearing the Buddhist robes? And Joshu said, not to deceive oneself. Well, that's, that's easier said than done. Because we have to be able to see 
what's going on in the mind. These, these mechanisms, these forms of avoidance, the, 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 the ways that we don't just look, just look squarely at what's going on. We do this in relationships. We do it in session practice. We do it in practice outside session. We do it in, uh, some of this comes out in term intensives where we make these pledges to try to uphold things and well, fall short. All right. But, uh, what is exactly is going on when we make these pledges to do better? What's going on in the mind? Now, it's, it's not the, the business of Zen to analyze oneself, but just in the course of concentrating on the practice, the breath, or the koan, or shikantaza, it's not really a concentration practice as such, but any of these practices, just in doing them, stuff is revealed. The stuff of the mind. We come to see things about ourselves often painful things about ourselves. This, in a way, is the, is the real pain of extended sitting, of whether it's sashin or some other kind, is uh, having our blind spots exposed, having, realizing that uh, at any any given time, we are just waking up to things about ourselves, the way we mismanage relationships, the way we reflexively put blame on the other. That's, that's hard to do when you're sitting 6, 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day. We see through that. We see what delusion that is to assign all the responsibility to the other person or people. It just becomes apparent. This is the, the marvel of Zen practice, which is really just comes down to leaving our thoughts alone. Can we just leave them alone? They arise thousands of times a day. We notice ourselves with thoughts. Can we just return to the practice? Just leave them alone. That's it. That's not a, that's not an elaborate practice. It's not complicated. This detach from thoughts, just refrain from embroidering more thoughts on top of whatever thought rises to our awareness. And in that simple not thinking, 
we peeled back layer after layer after layer of our minds, our psyches. Without analysis, we're not thinking. You don't, we don't need to think about ourselves. This is the genius of Zen practice. Without thinking about I, me, my, just dwelling in the practice we're working on, just staying there and returning there, just through that process, we discover so much about ourself, yes, about others, about the world, what's really happening. All of this just rolling into us just by refraining from engaging with our thoughts. Uh, when he says liking to be fooled by oneself, well, that suggests that, that uh, we know when we're being fooled, but that's a stretch. There's this kind of gray area between knowing and not knowing where uh, at some, maybe some level of the mind, we're aware that uh, we're pulling a fast one or we're covering our eyes. Um, but it's not quite fully conscious. We don't allow it in. And until we become aware of it, there's nothing we can do. We can't, we can't do anything about what we're not aware of. And again, that's where the practice comes in. It's just over time, we become more and more aware. And then once aware of the ways our minds work, the ways we, we misuse the mind, then we can do something about it. And what is there to do? It's simple. It's simple. The prescription in Zen is simple. Just don't linger in your thoughts. Well, beyond that, there are, there are efforts we can make in terms of uh, applying ourselves, using our willpower. Um, but mostly, it's just not trafficking in thoughts. That's the... That's the chief addiction of human beings. We think our addiction may be drugs or alcohol or sex or pornography or food or video games or internet, but really the real deadly one is addiction to our thoughts. And we have to face that when we're sitting for long periods of time. All right, again, back to what the tr translator calls things people are always wrong about. Second one, knowing others die, but not realizing one's own inevitable death. This also is a kind of a, that gray area between knowing and not knowing. We know it, in a manner of speaking, any anyone um, who's an adult or even more than a, 
more than a toddler, we know we're going to die. That's not the issue. The issue is whether we really can face that fact. How, how real is that? That knowledge, that foreknowledge of the, uh, the certainty of death and the uncertainty of the time of death. Here too, the uh, self-deception. Not active, intentional self-deception, but the, the self-deception that just goes on day after day, month after month, year after year. The denial of our, the certainty of our death and the uncertainty of the time of our death. It's harder to deny at this extraordinary time of the pandemic. Harder, but still, we can do it. We find a way to deny the danger, the mortal danger of getting close to others, going out when we don't need to, horsing around in public or, po or private. <laughs> the next one is uh, discriminating others right and wrong while not acting properly oneself. Yeah, this too is... <coughs> Just about anyone can appreciate the truth of what he's saying, that it's, uh, it's so easy to find fault with others, uh, to see others' faults. And so we have the sixth and seventh of the ten cardinal precepts, not to speak of the faults of others, but to be understanding and sympathetic. Not to praise oneself and disparage others, but to overcome one's own shortcomings. It, those two precepts may be may uh, be the ones that bedevil people most commonly than any of the other precepts. We so reflexively can silently be criticizing others judging others. People who uh, are new to Sashin often report their horror to discover how much time they spend in their minds judging others. It's another example of, of things that we just get by us in our regular daily life when we're not sitting much, we don't notice how much we're doing this, how reflexively we do this. But when we're sitting a lot in Sashin or elsewhere, uh, the veil is removed. Uh, ideas of right and wrong and judgments 
These are constructs of the mind. They can be very old constructs that uh, we put in place even as children that have calcified over time and uh, become really entrenched in the mind. So they're, they're, they're tough, these, these judgments and criticisms. But they still uh, have a floor to them. That is, they're, they're learned, they're acquired. And that offers hope that they're not essential to our nature. What what is essential to our nature is what is beyond all learned traits. We're not stuck with these things. We may be stuck with our judgments and criticisms and blind passions for a long time. Let's be honest about that. But they, because they are acquired, because they're part of a conditioned mind, uh, they're not the whole of our nature. The whole of our nature doesn't, doesn't exclude these things. That's, that is part of who we are. That's part of our, our temperament. But the real essence of who we are has nothing to do with anything learned with any kind of constructs of the mind. Sitting can take us to the place that is beyond all that. It's a wonderful uh, passage here by an Israeli poet by the name of Yehuda Amichai. And uh, it's called From the Place Where We Are Right. He says, From the place where we are right, flowers will never grow in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard. But doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plow, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. The other place where we can discover our tendencies to assign blame, uh, besides just through introspective meditation is in an intimate relationship, marriage or any other kind of close partnership. And that's where, it's the arena where we will have plenty of chance to see our tendencies to blame our partner and to so easily see his or her faults day after day, week after week, year after year, how much more easily we see that person's than our own. Here in our own tradition, 
our own six patriarch, six ancestor, Wei Nung, who famously said, when others are in the wrong, I too have transgressed. When I'm in the wrong, I alone am to blame. This is a exalted state that maybe none of us can live up to all the time anyway. Let's just break it down again. When others are in the wrong, I too have transgressed. And this is this also is what sitting reveals is our responsibility in conflict. And there's always some responsibility. It may be 90% the other person, but just by virtue of our presence, there's a little bit of responsibility we hold. Well, not to make a case of this, I think it would be the sitting itself reveals the truth of this, that we have always have some measure of responsibility when in conflict, maybe a lot. And then the second half, when I am in the wrong, I alone am to blame. Well, it seems to contradict the first part, but it's, it's, it's useful in terms of how to work in conflict. If we can uh, assume full responsibility without um, resorting to blaming the other person, it's just not, it's not useful to blame the other person. Maybe true, but how useful is it? What's much more useful and productive is to examine how we're responsible. But again, this happens on its own through practice. We don't have to learn these things. We don't have to be taught them, really. This is the the miracle of sitting. Not only sitting, but bringing into our daily lives this mind of stabilized awareness. If we can be, which means free of thoughts, not clinging to thoughts, that itself, everything unfolds from that. And and so in our Hakuin chant, we say, Upholding the precepts, okay, that's great. Repentance, very helpful. Upholding the precepts, repentance, and giving. Giving is the first of the six paramitas, six perfections. The countless good deeds, okay. And the way of right living, sure, sign me up. But all of that comes from Zazen. Not as fast as we would like it to, but still it comes through Zazen, sitting and moving Zazen, which again just means being aware and alert and not shackled to thoughts. Always remember, always, always remember that Zen practice is not limited to sitting. It's a, it's a, it's an ongoing thing we want to integrate into our life. 
That's the hard part. It's hard enough to sit. There's plenty of things difficult about sitting, especially without moving. But then what's really hard is to maintain this awareness in our in the comings and goings of our daily lives, especially whatever conflicts may arrive arise. In uh, marriage counseling, um, I've heard that, that this, it's more or less a common, a commonplace. Uh, the idea that you have a choice when you're in conflict with your spouse or your partner, a choice between being right and having a true relationship. How important is it for you to be right and to have your partner uh, agree that you're right? Look at all the bitter arguments. Or just a base, they're just one, both people insisting they're right. How about looking what's beyond right and wrong to what's going on? So that was all uh, his third, uh, third things people are always wrong about. <laughs> There's wrong. Uh, the next one is suffering from want and not knowing how to avoid it. Well, this is basic in the Dharma. Suffering from want. That's, that's the first noble truth is that suffering is pervasive and uh, largely, we could say, it's, it stems from uh, our likes and dislikes, our preferences. We set ourselves up to suffer. Not knowing how to avoid it, well, that would be someone who hasn't been introduced to the Dharma. Because the Buddha spoke of this 2,500 years ago. How do you, how do you free yourself from suffering? Well, we, we can't free ourselves from pain, just physical pain or even emotional pains, such as losing someone close to us, relationship breaks up. It's going to be painful. That's, that's our lot as uh, human beings, as sentient beings, is to suffer pain. Um, often or less often, but but suffering in this context, suffering is something beyond that. Suffering is is all wound around the self. And that we can dissolve little by little. So, for example, um, sitting with pain, physical pain, in Sashin, when you can't move, what we discover 
in a longer or a shorter period of time is if we're not sitting and thinking about ourselves having pain, and there are lots of ways of doing that, a lot of different variations of doing that, but it all comes down to uh, finding the I or the my in the middle of the pain. If we can refrain from doing that, then the pain changes, it softens, it recedes. And that, that happens through Zazen, through absorption in the practice. That's how our relationship to the physical pain changes or, or the emotional pain by not dwelling on ourself as having the pain, but absor being absorbed in the practice. You can't just try this for a couple minutes and then give up and think, well, it's not working. You got to stick with this. You got to persevere and really have faith in the practice, the breath, the koan, shikantaza. Stick with it. And then you will find that the pain changes. It's manageable then. I found this old uh, account. I can't resist reading this. Um, I'll just read it as it is. Drawing on his experiences as a young artillery officer in Imperial Russia's military during the Crimean War in 1853 to 1856, Leo Tolstoy described in Sevastopol sketches how a Russian soldier whose leg had been amputated above the knee coped with agonizing pain. And here's what the amputee uh, remarked. The chief thing, Your Honor, is not to think. If you don't think, it is nothing much. It mostly all comes from thinking. Yeah, just to say the other side, though, uh, if there is a there is a point at which physical pain has to be respected and um, and and then it becomes uh, a preoccupation becomes a problem it's distracting it's your 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 practice is not helping it is not being helped and uh, when you get to that point then you have to make adjustments in your posture or your cushions or whatever um but not to too easily throw in the towel because there's a lot to be learned by persevering through moderate pain. The next one of things people are wrong about is thinking that original nothingness is nothing. Here's the distinction, a semantic distinction between these terms. Original nothingness, you could put a capital N on it, capitalize it. This is the realm 
of essential nature, the the non-substantiality of all things, even physical things. This is what enlightenment reveals, enormously liberating realization. And he's, Bunan is saying, don't mistake that for just nothing, small n, Psst, nothing. And he's saying it, I'm sure, as other masters have said it, because the the monks, uh, our predecessors, would often use this as a kind of a device to show off. They would claim to, uh, they would, let's say, they're working on Mu, they would say, oh, well, Mu is really, in the end, it's just nothing. Ah, blah. That's not seeing into the no-thingness of the world of phenomena. Well, I'm going to stop here now. We'll stop and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain. <laughs>